Amen. What a great time of worship together today. If you are brand new with us, my name's Tanner. I'm on staff here. And the reason South Point exists is we want you and everyone to experience God's unconditional love. And we believe that is seen in the person of Jesus, that the God came down in human form. He put on flesh and dwelt among people here in the first century as this person, Jesus, and he is worth celebrating. And this year what we're doing in our teaching time is teaching all the way through the book of John, one of his biographies in Scripture. And in particular, right now, we're looking at a theme in the book of John, the signs that John references. The signs are miracles. John calls them signs because they, they point to something. They point to something greater, something powerful. They're not just events that were uh, captured in the first century and, and, and meaningless from that point forward. They have great meaning for our lives today. And today, I think we are talking about a, an extremely powerful sign. I believe that it answers the question, what hope do we have in a world of suffering? What hope do we have in a world of suffering? And, and Jesus sees, as he's going along, sees someone who is suffering, and his disciples ask him this question. Uh, you can go back. We're not going to read this whole chapter today. It is a long chapter. I would encourage you to go back and complete and read this whole chapter, but I will warn you today, we are reading a lot of Scripture. So, as I've said numerous, numerous times before, pay attention to the Scripture. It's more important than what I say. Pay attention when we're reading this here, because I know my tendency is when I sit in the seats, something goes on the screen, I start thinking about something else. So, we will start here in John chapter 9, the first two verses. As he went along, he saw a blind, a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him this question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This right here is a very modern question. Yes, it happened in the ancient world, but it is a modern question. When we run across suffering, the question that these disciples, the people who had walked with Jesus, are in essence asking, who is to blame? We see suffering. Jesus, who is to blame? And suffering, what we see in this, it often produces the blame game. Suffering often produces the blame game. They ask this question to the disciples, is it, is it this man or his parents? Who sinned, who messed up, that this is the consequence that this person is facing, that they are blind from birth? One of them had to have sinned. Who is it? They give Jesus two options, and what Jesus does is Jesus dismantles both of these options in this, in this chapter, in this story that you will see. Both of these options are very modern. Is it, was it his parents or was it him? And we can think about this. Who's to blame? And maybe you ask this question about the suffering in your life. Who's to blame for you suffering? Well, is it someone else or is it me? When we talk about someone else, here's how the story goes. Here's how we play this out today. You know, I am the way that I am because of someone else. 
fill in the blank, my parents, my teacher. I am the way that I am. I do what I do because of, and you know what? It's just because of them, because they treated me this way. If you were me, you would be doing the exact same thing. You'd be exactly the same way as me. And what that blame, that path of blame towards other people, what that does is that produces inside of us, welling up, it produces inside of us self-pity and bitterness and anger and doesn't lead to anything positive. Who sinned, Jesus? Was it his parents that he suffered? Or the other path, the other path of suffering, these two that, paths that Jesus is dismantling here about why people suffer. He says, was it this man? We look at suffering, is it because of someone else or is it because of something I did? And you may be sitting here and you may say, well, you know what? I'm going through this because I did this. Or this thing happened to me or this diagnosis or this, and we can fill in the blank. This situation happened to me because I messed up sometime in the past and God is getting even with me. Or you may say, karma is catching up with me. Whatever you say, this is how the path goes today. The people, the people talk like this. And they think like this. And what that does is inside of you, that produces guilt and that produces shame. And again, nothing positive at all. These are the two paths here that Jesus is going to dismantle in the rest of John chapter 9. We see what Jesus says in John chapter 9, starting in verse 3. The question is, who sinned? Was it, was it his parents or was it him? Who is to blame? And here's what Jesus answers. He answers, no. No. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. I, think, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, both of these people, this man and his parents, they're all perfect. No, Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, they're not to blame for this person's suffering. He says, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, what Jesus did, it was just what you would do if you wanted to heal someone's blindness. You spit on the ground. <laughs> make some mud with the saliva. <laughs> Paint on man's eyes. <laughs> What a scene. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. I always wonder, how did he get there? I don't know. And the word Siloam means sense. So the man just did what Jesus said. He went and he washed. And he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, same question that you would probably ask if you've seen someone begging a lot of times or that I would ask, you know, honestly, sometimes we don't always pay attention. Is this the person? We don't look at someone's face fully. Isn't this the same man? They're not even sure. Isn't this the same man who used to sit right here and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, and this is one of the great scriptures you can take out of context right here. I am the man. And then they said, how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus. He made some mud and he put it on my eyes. I, yeah, he told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and I washed it. Then I could see. 
where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. And what Jesus does is he dismisses. He unpacks and dismantles both lines of thought about, hey, suffering is here. Let's blame it on either other people or blame it on yourself. I encourage you to read the rest of the chapter. It's very fascinating. The question, though, is if suffering is not from one of those two places, where is it from? And this is where we take a step back and we look at all of Scripture and that we say suffering is not really for some sin in particular. Suffering exists in a world because of sin in general. Exists in the world because of sin in general. So let me go all the way back before creation. There are, there are many people today who talk about why the world is the way that it is. And here's what Scripture will say. The Scripture, when you open up Scripture, it will, it will give you a picture. Scripture is here to give you a picture of this God who exists. This God who is so much bigger and higher than anything you and I can comprehend. And it's that God is one being, one God, and yet existing in, eternally in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons have existed eternally. One God existing eternally in perfect unity. What this means is that in all of eternity, you can look back and you will see the Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father, and the Spirit loving the Father, and loving the Son. There is perfect love that exists in this triune, this Trinity God is what it is called. Why did this God create anything at all? Is it because this God wanted human beings to be obedient, to serve him, as if he needed anything? No. The reason that this God created anything at all is because there is this perfect love between this Trinity God and he wanted to extend that love to others, to humanity. So he said, I want to invite you. I'm creating you to invite you into a perfect, loving relationship. And did so and created this perfect world where there was great harmony between human beings and one another and great harmony between human beings and God. But God said, you know, I, I, I know that pure love can't exist if I do not give human beings free will. They must have the, the ability to choose me or not. And if they have the ability to not choose me, then sin can enter the world. And it did. And it wreaked havoc on absolutely everything. These notions that we're talking about, about guilt and shame and blame and pointing fingers, that goes all the way back to the opening pages of Scripture. This is not something that is new. What sin did is it, it wrecked this world that we, that we see. If you ever sit back and you look at the world, you say, well, this world is not as it should be. And God would say, yes, you're right. This is not even how I created it to be. I want to redeem it. And that is what we see here in Scripture. We see that this God here said, the way that I'm going to redeem this is that I'm actually going to enter 
into this pain and suffering myself. And this is how God the Son, Jesus Christ, put on flesh in the first century and went and said, I'm going to suffer. And if you don't know anything about Jesus, Jesus was born of a virgin. Whom, by the way, not everyone believed her story about an angel visiting her. Which had, in the first century, a a certain label then placed on Jesus. Jesus grew up among an oppressed people. He grew up in a working class to poor family. Jesus experienced suffering along the way where his family did not believe in him. He had friends and family who were close to him who abandoned him. People who walked out on him. Jesus experienced the physical pain of suffering on a cross, but he entered this world and said, I want to take on the pain and the suffering of this world. And what he did is he took your punishment and my punishment. And this is where I want to sidebar just for a second here because I don't want to, if you were here last week, I don't want to say something that sounds contradictory to what I said last week. Last week we talked about how God can discipline us, that God does discipline those he loves. We read the scripture from Hebrews chapter 12. And you may say, well, okay, well, God doesn't, okay, you're, you're telling me that, that Jesus took our punishment but that God disciplines us. And yes, I've had this conversation with people several times throughout my years in ministry here There's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment looks back and says, I want to get even on you for something in the past. Discipline says, I want to shape you for the future. That God will, yes, God will still discipline you because he's active in your life. I mean, you can take take examples from your relationships. You can take examples from, from money. Like if you... If you say, God, I know what you say about being generous. I know what you say about giving. I know what you say about giving first. Yet I have all these other priorities, and you start to make excuses. And yeah, they sound good to you, but in your your deepest moments, you know, hey, these are really actually excuses. And then guess what? Your financial life, like, doesn't work out as you think it's going to work out. God could be knocking on your door and saying, hey, hello, you know what's right. You need me involved in your finances. He's not punishing, he's disciplining, and there is a difference between the two. So when we talk about sin being in this world, sin is not, or suffering being in this world, you are not suffering because God is punishing you. Why? Because what Scripture says is that Jesus has taken all of that punishment. Anything that you deserve, that I deserve, he's taken the sin and the shame of the world and nailed it to a cross. But the reason suffering exists at all is because sin is in this world and Scripture is looking ahead. Scripture is looking ahead to a time when there is going to be redemption, when there's going to be no more suffering. So let me give you a couple examples here from Scripture. So one is from the New Testament, another story that Jesus told. Jesus is asked, in this story, Jesus is asked a similar type of question that he's asked by his disciples, the one that we read this morning. Uh, This comes from Luke chapter 13. Uh, There's a current event that happened where there were 18 people who died when a tower 
fell on them. And again, people were wanting to know who was to blame. And they said, okay, the 18 died and the tower of Siloam fell on them. And Jesus asked him this question. He asked the people who were asking the question, he said, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? He's saying, do you, think, you really think it's for them, them to blame? And he says, I tell you, no. But then he looks at them and he says, you must repent because you too will perish. Okay, I want you to leave that right here. Yes, sin exists, or suffering exists in the world because sin exists in general. And just because these people had something bad happen to them, it doesn't mean that their sin in particular brought this on. Or you can look at the book of Job, and if you are new to Scripture and you've never heard of this person Job, you look in your table of contents, you will see a name that is spelled like the word Job, right? You read this, and you will see one of the great, the most incredible stories uh, I believe in Scripture, you will see a man who was righteous, who did everything, he did everything right. And yet he suffered immensely, immensely. He's mourning, he's grieving in his suffering. And he has three friends who come alongside of him and they sit with him for a week before even saying anything to him. And then basically their conversation goes like this. Hey, Job, you suffered, and I know you think you're righteous, but guess what? It's actually you who did something, and Job is like, no, I didn't actually do anything. And they say, actually, it is you, because suffering just doesn't happen for no reason. It's you, and Job says, no, I really didn't do anything, and they say, no, it's you, and that happens for about 40 chapters. <laughs> but this is a conversation a lot of religious people have. Who's to blame? And the last about four chapters of this book here, we see God come in and God looks at these three friends and he says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. And then he looks at Job and he said, Job, you're not me. You're not perfect. Were you there when I created this world? Like, when I decided how far the sea was going to go? Were you there when I created it? And he just starts listing all of these things he did. Were you there? And Job is silence. And the silence because he's experiencing someone who is so much greater than he even realized. What Scripture does and our suffering. It doesn't blame because of one sin or particular on this person or on ourselves. It says, here's the reason for suffering. Sin in general. Sin in general. And then what it does is unleashes a hope. It unleashes a hope. And there's two layers, I would say, to this hope. One of the layers is that your suffering, if you are a Jesus follower, your suffering is not wasted. And the second is that your suffering will be redeemed. It's, you're not, your suffering is not wasted, but it will be redeemed. When he talks about suffering, not being wasted. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, 
where there's this man, Joseph, who encountered great suffering. His brothers hated him so, so much, they were so jealous of him that they actually sold him in slavery and convinced his father that he had died by accident. He was falsely accused, thrown into prison for years where he was alone. And then God worked this incredible, wove this incredible story together where he found himself in a place where he helped a whole people survive when a famine was happening. He provided food for a whole people. And not only that, not just any people, but he let God's work, because through him, God's work continued through the whole nation of Israel. They continued to exist because, because he was in this position, because he had suffered. And here's what he says when he encounters his brothers at the end of the story, when they're, they're before him and they have no food where they are in their land. They, they travel from a great distance to see him. And he says, yeah, you, you all, you intended to harm me. Yes, I understand that. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He's saying, my suffering was not wasted. All of what I went through wasn't wasted because God had a plan. God had a plan. You know, sometimes people tell me, well, I can't believe in God because I can't believe in a good God who's all-powerful because suffering exists in the world. And honestly, to almost everyone who has said that to me, they think that's like the kind of exclamation point. There's like no answer to this question. <laughs> oh, you don't know why suffering exists? Let me, and, and they will say, just because you can't tell me the reason why, I'm going to kind of throw this on you. I don't, believe in, I don't believe there can be a good God if suffering exists. To which I kindly ask back, well, what's the alternative? For a good God not to exist? For this world to be an accident? For you to be an accident? For there to be no overall purpose in the history and direction of this world? What's in the point of your suffering? If it exists in the span of history where it has absolutely no point. If you tell me there's no good God that exists, that there's no God who exists, what you're telling me is that all the people in this world who are suffering greatly, that their suffering is wasted. Is that a better alternative? And here's what Scripture will say about this. Romans chapter 5. He says, not only so, but he says we glory in our sufferings because we know, here's, he says, here's what we know. Our suffering is not wasted because suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, what it does is it produces character. And character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering is not wasted. And it's suffering, yes, it will be redeemed. 
and he points ahead in this book of Romans, which I love, and he, he outlines this so well, that if you are a Jesus follower, your, hope, your, your suffering is not wasted. And indeed, one day is it not only not going to be wasted, it is going to be redeemed because God's, cha- God's going to transform this whole world. It's moving towards a climax of redeeming this whole world back to the way that he created it, where there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. This is what he says at the end of the book. And we fast forward to Romans chapter 8. And he says, let me talk to you about present sufferings. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He says, yes, you are suffering, but guess what? It's a little time. It's just a little bit because one day there's going to be glory that you are experiencing when you come face to face with God Almighty and you are in this perfect creation. Yes, the present sufferings, you are suffering, but they are not going to compare He says, for the creation, he says, all of creation, it's not just humans, all of creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For this climax he's he's talking about, he says, for creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. He says, but it is subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, he says, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. He's saying, guess what creation right is right now? Everything decays. You know this, and I know this. You do work outside, you trim trees, and guess what happens? Stuff starts to decay. It starts to break down. If you don't keep it up, decay always sets in. And he says, that is bondage that it is in right now. But guess what? When God is redeeming this whole place, this whole creation, this creation is going to be liberated from that bondage to decay. And it's going to be brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. He says, we know, and listen, here's the key word here, groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in pains as in childbirth right up to the present time. Yes, it's still happening. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What he's saying is if you are a Jesus follower, you have the taste of the presence of God. The first fruit, it is the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. God's presence inside of you. And he says, even though we have the first fruits, here's what happens. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. He says, for in this hope, in this hope, as we are waiting in this world that we are suffering, he says, in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen, he says, is no hope at all. What he's saying is, guess what? You feel the suffering, but you don't see it. Because if you did, it wouldn't be hope at all. He says, who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. He's saying creation is groaning, and you are groaning as you are suffering, and you're waiting for something to change. You're waiting for something to change. He says, this is the, so let me talk to you about our present sufferings. This is the reality that we live in right now. And you may say, well, what does that mean for me right now? Here's what all of this means for you right now. If you are suffering, what this means is that you can be honest with God. Very, very honest with God. Yes, God, I am waiting for this day. I can't wait for a creation and myself to be fully redeemed. I can't wait for a day where there's no more crying, no more mourning, no more death, no more pain. I cannot wait, God. 
But until then, I'm eager, I, I'm groaning, I'm groaning because I'm suffering. And here's the assurance that Scripture gives you. Because there's, there's times, there's going to be times when you don't even have the words to say. You are groaning so much right now, you don't even have the words to say. And the next verse in Scripture talks about this. Verses 26 and 27. It says, in the same way, just as creation is growing, he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. You ever, have you ever been there? You're suffering. You don't say, God, I don't even know what I should pray for. I'm so broken, so down. Please. And he says, here's, here's the reality. The Spirit himself, the Spirit of God himself, intercedes for us. If you don't know what to pray, he says, guess what? You have a helper with you inside of you who is uttering prayers on your behalf through wordless groans. The Holy Spirit is groaning for you on your behalf. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit is there. You don't know what you ought to pray for. And the Spirit says, okay, I will do it for you. Sometimes people say, well, Christians just give pat answers about suffering. No, 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 no. Here's the layers to this. What he's saying. Don't blame all your suffering on other people. That's not going to produce any peace inside of you. Don't blame all your suffering on yourself. That's going to produce guilt and shame and people-pleasing and codependence, all these things. Don't do that. You can't be, don't, <laughs> don't ever look at God and say, God, you owe me a comfortable life. I haven't done anything wrong. No. <laughs> Yet at the same time. Jesus is saying, I've taken your punishment for you. And this whole world, this whole world is moving forward to redemption. And he climaxes chapter 8 in the book of Romans with these words that we read two weeks ago. And after this, we're going to take communion. But we read these words two weeks ago. Well, let's face it, that was two weeks ago. <laughs> and it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you realize this? You've been called according to the purpose of God. For those, he got, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? What shall we say in response to the suffering and that we have a spirit who is groaning on our behalf? What shall we say that God allows us to be honest with him in the moment, but he promises a hope to ahead? What should we say for all these things? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I think that we overlook this word God. Should we not look, just like the person of Job, and stand before this God who says, look, I spoke everything into existence. I'm the one who spoke, and the sea only goes up to this point. I'm the one who flung the stars in the sky. I'm the one who knows how many planets are in the sky, and yet 
I am the one who sees the very depths of your heart and your soul. And I have hands that are big enough to hold all of this and yet tiny enough to rearrange your heart and change your life. We have a God. I mean, talking a God who is in charge of this. And if that God is for us, then absolutely nothing else can be against us. He, this God who is all of those things, did not spare his own son. He didn't spare his own son for you. You want to talk about love? You can't question his love because of that. But he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If that God is for us, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It is not your mother. It is not your brother. It is not your sister. Nobody else at work. It is the God who justifies. Who then condemns? Guess what? Nobody else can condemn you because of him. No one. Christ Jesus who died. And guess what? Yes, he died. And this is why we celebrate communion. More than that, he was raised to life. He conquered death. And he is at the right hand of God. And he is also interceding for us. He says, you get the picture here. Even though you're suffering, you have the Holy Spirit interceding for you. You have Jesus interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? He says, no, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are, be, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, he says, guess what? We are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of that God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Your suffering's not wasted. It will be redeemed because of the great resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. And in this moment where we celebrate communion, where we praise you in song, God, I pray that you help us focus on you. And yes, all these other troubles and hardships and persecutions and all of these other things cloud in on us. And they certainly feel more powerful sometimes than you do. God, we praise you that you are with us. We praise you that you have sent your son into this world to experience suffering, to absorb suffering, so it is not just some hypothetical thing that he's talking about. But he does this for us. He absorbed that on the cross, and he conquered death. Thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling inside Jesus' followers, who when we are groaning inwardly, don't even have the words to say, that we can just be honest. And the Spirit will pray on our behalf.
we thank you that even though we may be feeling a certain way, that absolutely nothing can separate us from your love. We thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray.